0: you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for the word of God. Without this word, we would be left in the dark, but we haven't been left in the dark. And every text in some way teaches us about your character, teaches us about your worth, teaches us something glorious about our Redeemer. So Father, we pray that that would be the case today. And we pray your spirit would teach us And we pray that the preacher would steward these few minutes well. And that your people, as hearers of the word of God, would steward these few minutes well as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Lawan Ndimi of Nigeria was kidnapped on January the 2nd. Went missing 24 days ago by the terrorist group Boko Haram. And they called his wife and told her if he did not renounce the faith that they were going to behead him. And on Monday, this past Monday, January the 20th, they did just that because he refused to renounce our Lord Jesus Christ. And Demi was 58 years old And he left behind a wife and nine children. Now on January the 5th, a video was published of Endimi pleading for help, in particular from his government. But he was also firm in his belief, and here's what he said. All conditions that one finds himself in is in the hand of God. How about that faith? And no matter what happens, it will be good. That's faith. No matter what happens, it will be good. Because he knows his God is good. And he knows his God is sovereign. And he said, I want all people, close and far, to be patient. Don't cry, don't worry. But thank God for everything. The Western church that gets so caught up in tertiary matters needs to hear from men like this, don't they? Don't we? The question is, how can such faith be justified? Especially when it did not appear to end well for pastor and deeming. Well, texts like 2 Samuel 5 help us with that. Uh, This text drives home not only to us that the Lord's promises are assured in spite of extreme opposition and even enemies. That's certainly important for believers facing death, isn't it? But as we're going to see, it also points us to a day We're martindoms like our pastor here, and videos that were published, like Pastor Endemi's video, won't exist anymore. Because the king, and we've just sang it, Psalm 110, the king who's been enthroned at the right hand of the Lord will one day, once and for all, and definitively, make All of his and our enemies a footstool for his feet. And we are seeing this played out even in 2 Samuel 5. And the first thing we see here, after the waiting, after the long period of waiting, God makes David his king. Look with me in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. That's a miracle. These are the same tribes that were at civil war against David. This is a miracle of grace. And, and keep this in mind. When we're going through the Old Testament, our people, we're, we're, we tend to be so used to lists of things to do. Here's your application list. There's no commands here for us. It's a God to worship. That's the most important application. All right. We're seeing our God at work being faithful to his promises. There's no greater application than that. This is a miracle. Opposition to David's claim to be king over all of Israel is now dead. It's dead. Even though these were rebels to David. And we've seen God's remarkable providence... In overcoming all opposition, that, we saw that in the last passage, the last chapter, and it's a beautiful time that we see here. First Samuel does not, or Second Samuel doesn't go into detail, but First Chronicles does. First Chronicles 11 and following really is a parallel to what we see starting in Second Samuel 5. So, for instance, on this day that he's made king, listen to what it says in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 38. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order. Who are the men of war? The men who've been warring against David. They came to Hebron with a whole heart. That's a miracle. This is grace. This is mercy. To make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. you know that when a people have a single mind, that's the grace of God? Because that's not natural to us, is it? We love division. But they came with a single mind. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also there were relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and, and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep. And I love this. For there was joy in Israel. There was joy in Israel. It's the first time. It's the first time we've seen joy in Israel. And this joy is centered on this king. But the fact that they came to David at Hebron, I think, emphasizes the reality that has dominated the entire Davidic narrative. David never once has forced this to happen. He was promised to be king in 1 Samuel 16, and he has never demanded on his rights He's submitted his rights to the sovereignty of God. He's not forced it. He didn't seize the throne. He has received it with faith. And that's a word to us who seek to force things to happen rather than just trusting in God's timing, trusting in God's ways. Now, how did he resist the temptation that would have been very easy to give into, to force his kingdom? The answer... And this is an application for us. When someone believes the promises of God, that person has a remarkably clear vision of the future. When someone believes the promises of God, that person has a remarkably clear vision of the future. And though prophets like Samuel do not come to us, A prophet in Samuel came to David and made this promise, right? Prophets don't come to us today. And though we are never promised what David was promised, to be king over Israel, we do have promises that are as equally authoritative. The promises of God spelled out in his word. Most broadly is this promise. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's a promise that you can rest in. You don't know exactly where God's going with your life. We don't have the the privilege to have prophets come to us and speak specific words of prophecy over us unless they're grounded in the scripture. But we have that promise. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. You have the promise, Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's a promise that's as authoritative as the promise that Samuel made to David. But here's another question. Why did all these tribes finally come to David? We've seen it's a miracle, but at the human angle, why did they finally submit to David? It's clear. They had come to their senses. To be under a king other than David, and everyone has a king. Even the most ardent atheist has a king ruling over that person. We're hardwired for a king. So a king you will have. It may be self-rule, but you'll have a king. And they had come to the place where they recognized to have a king other than David was at the height of insanity. And in the same way, whoever converts today to God's king acknowledges that they've come to their senses. Second Timothy 2, verse 26. Previous attempts... To live with a king other than David had been futile and foolish. They'd come to realize that. They'd been under Ishbosheth, and they'd come to recognize this was the height of insanity. And what ultimately brought these tribes to their senses? The gospel. You say, where do you get that from? Well, look back in chapter 3. In chapter 3 verses 17 to 18, Abner had come to these tribes. And here's what he said. He conferred with the elders of Israel. Chapter 3, verse 17. For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel. That's the gospel of the kingdom and they had heard it. But there were three other factors as well that we see in our text. First of all, David's relationship, family relationship to these people. Notice with me uh, again in verse 1. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, where God said, in the coming days when he provides Israel, their king, He would be one from among the brethren. He had to be made like them, in other words. The second factor was David's leadership. Look with me in verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so David's extensive military successes were very apparent while he was in service to Saul. They had seen the efficacy of this Messiah, this anointed one. Perhaps the most important reason and most important factor, though, was the promise we see in verse 2 where it says, And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people of Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. And so Abner had preached the gospel of the kingdom. They recognized David was of the same relationship, family relationship. They had seen his successes, his efficacy as the anointed one, as their warrior king. And finally here, they remembered the promise. The promise made by God to David. God had promised that he would be their shepherd. And they were now resting in that. But this also betrays the fact that they had known all along that David was to be their king. They had known it all along. They, they had known it all the way back. They're acknowledging that here, which exposes to us that their resistance, their silver war was simply hard-hearted rebellion. And you can have and this is a good point to many today you can have head knowledge about the king. And that head knowledge can be correct and right. You could pass a theology exam about this king, but you are outside his kingdom, no matter what your head knowledge tells you, until you submit to the king on his terms. They were outside the kingdom of David, which consisted of Judah and Benjamin, until they submitted to the king on the king's terms. There's no, there's no place in the scripture where someone has the king as their savior if the king is not their ruler. doesn't exist. Even if that person can answer all the questions, they clearly could answer all the questions. But they were outside the kingdom until they submitted. But there's another perspective on this as well. Their sustained resistance... And it had, the Civil War had taken some seven years. Their sustained resistance proves the power of the, the kingdom of God. Because in spite of their long-term rebellion, God's promise to David came to pass. I find that so comforting. Though in the interim, their resistance caused a lot of pain. Indeed, the Lord is able to overcome all opposition and establish his word in the hearts of the rebellious. This past week at the conference I was preaching at, I'd met this lady earlier in the conference, and she brought her husband up to me, and she started tearing up and she said her name was Jenny this is my husband richard and she said i've been praying for him for 40 years he's been attending with me for church to church for 40 years but he's never ever submitted to christ and a few months ago he came into my bedroom our bedroom and said jenny you know what just happened She said, what? He said, I just repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus. She said, Brian, I prayed for him for 40 years, and God's word prevailed. That's hope for all of us who have lost family members, who have lost loved ones. And for Israel, they confess, notice, that the king they were submitting to would be their shepherd. That's the language that's used there. You shall be shepherd of Israel. Prince over Israel. What does a shepherd do? He leads. He defends. He feeds. He tends to their needs. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. The king from Judah, all right? This is who David is. The king of Judah as your shepherd, going where he goes. That's what someone in the kingdom does. A sheep who goes where the the shepherd goes. A sheep who is fed by the shepherd alone. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. Now, shepherd imagery was associated with kings in the ancient Near East. All right? The Old Testament's not borrowing from paganism. All right? The pagan religions all had some semblances of truth because we're created this image of God and, and the law has been written on the hearts. But what the Old Testament does is it takes on pagan religion, it polemicizes against pagan religion. And so the ancient Near East associated shepherds with kings. This is the first time, though, that this title is applied to Israel's king. Of course, we know from that beautiful Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd, right? And we learned even earlier in Genesis 48 that God is our shepherd. But now what we're coming to realize is that God's shepherding ministry will be expressed through David. God's shepherding ministry will be expressed through the line of David, through the line of Judah. Look with me in verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and king David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. So now the king is in covenant with the people of God. This is the kingdom of God. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah. 33 years. Now, to drive home the fact that God's time is not our time, I heard one preacher say one time, I think it was Swindoll, God made time and man made the watch, right? God's time is not our time. It has been 800 years since Jacob prophesied over his son Judah. And what did he say to Judah In Genesis 49, Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the ruling scepter. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now in David, who is from the tribe of Judah, this prophecy was beginning to be fulfilled. 800 years after the promise. And it will be another 1,000 years before the ultimate fulfillment. But when the fullness of time comes, God fulfills all his promises, correct? Correct? I love what Del Ralph Davis said regarding this passage. This, his promises, God's promises, are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. Yahweh's promises may be old or opposed, but never false. God's promises may be old or opposed, but never false. They're never stamped with an expiration date in small print. That's beautiful. The Lord does make us wait, though, doesn't he? For our good. And at 30, some 13, 15 years, some say, after the original promise, David receives The answer to this promise. 30, by the way, was regarded as an ideal age at which to take on responsibility. And we know that the Levitical priest could not become priest until they were 30. Jesus' public ministry began when he was 30. John the Baptist's public ministry began when he was 30. And now, with this massive responsibility on his shoulders, David's first recorded act as king over the united Israel was to establish a city, a capital city that would serve as the place for God's rule, which would be expressed through him, so that God's people might have a place to be under God's rule through the expression of the Davidic king. And so we saw in the first part of this passage, God makes David king. In the second part of this passage, David makes Jerusalem his city. Verse six, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Now, we know that Hebron, which was a city in the territory allotted to Judah, had been David's capital for the last seven plus years. And it was a good capital. But if he had kept his capital in Hebron, it would have implied a bias towards the people of Judah. And that could have been uh, created an obstacle for unity among the other eleven tribes. All right, so wisely David chose to make Jerusalem the capital, which was a city that bordered on Judah, but was actually in the territory of Benjamin. I think was a wise move. But with that said, there's more to it than that. In fact, we sang it just earlier. This morning, remember the first time we read about Jerusalem. It's actually called Salem, Genesis chapter 14. And we see after Abraham's great battle uh, with these kings who had kidnapped his nephew Lot, that this mysterious priest king named Melchizedek, He blesses Abraham, and Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. And I believe, based on Psalm 110, where David is speaking about a greater king to come, and he says about this king who will sit at the right hand of God, you will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. David sees that there's one who's going to come, who's better than him. Who will serve not just as a king, not just as a priest. Because those two offices were were divided under the old covenant. But he will come as a, a priest king. And so I believe the reason he chose Jerusalem was because he was seeing that that day is coming. Another and greater Melchizedek figure, a greater priest king is coming. And so he seems to be honoring Melchizedek's city as the chief city of the land where this priest king would rule. That, that Jerusalem had long been on David's mind. We saw it in chapter 17. After he, he crushed the head of Goliath, what did he do? He cut his head off and he took that head into the city of Jerusalem. It's like he was laying claim even back several years earlier. Of course, David's decision concerning Jerusalem was not without its challenges, just like today in the local church. When when the church is seeking to be obedient and faithful, there will be warfare. There will be challenges. We would be naive to think that there won't be challenges. This city was inhabited by the Jebusites who were a banned Canaanite group. Now, we know that Israel was commanded to defeat all the Canaanites and, ex- and, and extinguish them from the land because of the evil, because of the paganism and the wickedness of these people. So, for example, they had failed in that. And like Judges 121 says, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. That's the book of Judges. Who lived in Jerusalem? And, and we see that because the people failed to drive out the Canaanites, they became Canaanites, functionally. They began to act like the Canaanites. They began to worship the Canaanites gods. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Judges 121. And so the defeat of the Jebusites here was a fulfillment of a promise made all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 18, God tells Abraham, to your offspring, that is your seed, your family line, I give this land, the land among other tribes in the land of the Jebusites. A people, I might add, who had PhDs in evil. Studies on the Jebusites will make your heart melt. They majored in wickedness. They were violent. They were bloodthirsty. And they had an unquenchable appetite for child sacrifice. They would sacrifice their children on altars to satisfy the gods. Of course, we're, we're not a whole lot different in our culture. We've sacrificed 60 plus million children on the altar of right to choose. We're not much different. But so for David to make Jerusalem Israel's capital, he first had to conquer evil. And what David's going to do, he's going to make unholy space into a holy place. That's what he's going to do. The place in the city that David attacks that we see here was the stronghold, not the entire city. Verse 7 says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Now, what does that mean? Well, within the outer walls of an ancient Near Eastern city, was a stronghold. Have you ever heard the term Acropolis? That's what it was. Acropolis was the religious center, but it was a stronghold within the outer walls of an ancient Eastern city. It was the last outpost of a siege. And so if enemies broke into those outer walls, you at least had the Acropolis. You had the stronghold. And the people would retreat to this stronghold, this Acropolis, which was generally elevated and more defensible. Furthermore, this particular stronghold, this particular city, was surrounded by three steep valleys. And it was so well protected by both natural and man-made defenses that the Jebusites, in their arrogance, taunted David by saying that their city could even be defended by the lame and the blind. Do you see that? You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. But again, as one writer says, this is a good line? And colorful words to use. Unless you have to eat those words. Again, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. That's a reference to the Jebusites. Who are hated by David's soul. I love that. David took took the stronghold of Zion. Just a trivia point here. This is the first time in the Bible we read the name Zion. What does it mean? Get out your pen. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's just a guess. Nobody knows what Zion means. I've consulted all sources and it's all speculation. It was apparently... A name given by the Jebusites for this settlement. But now this unholy place is to be made holy space. Zion is going to be sanctified, that name. And in spite of the strength of the Jebusites' fortress, I love this, it was an impossible situation from a human perspective. And I love this. The king, the king was able to capture it. What greater application than that? The king was able. He was able to capture it. Now, the language is obscure, but evidently David's men got into the stronghold through the water tunnel. Chronicles tells us it was Joab leading the way, the one who had recently been scolded by David. But the Jebusites here join an infamous club of countless others who underestimate God's king at great personal cost. And the application is clear. The king's victories are the people's victories. Indeed, their mocking words were clearly premature, and David uses their words to mock them back. He, dec- he declares his disdain for their blind and their lame. Now we know that he's not referring to a universal statement of hating the lame because in chapter 9 he's going to minister to Mephibosheth, who is lame in his feet. He's just accepting their self designation and he's turning it back on them. Furthermore, though not all the Jebusites were killed in the battle, their survivors were denied entry into David's new place. He makes that clear. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. In other words, David's victory transforms this place into the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. The city of Shalom. The room, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's the city of Of peace. It had formerly been a space of shalom vandalism, and now it's become a place of shalom because of the victory of the king. That's what the king does. The king comes and he overthrows falsehood and all that is wicked, and he replaces it with with truth and righteousness. And once he had won this victory, he got to work on building. Notice in verse 9. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, which means filling. All right? So he's building this thing from the inside out. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was hit with him. Now in 2 Samuel verses or chapters 5 to 8, we will see three times, we're gonna see it three times. This is the first, that David fights Israel's enemies, and then the text notes a building project. A building project. That's that's a foreshadowing. It's something beautiful and glorious. These chapters show us that he wasn't just a warrior destroying his enemies, he's a builder. Forming a new Israel who will reside in a new place. God's people in God's place. Because in the ancient Near East, a house was a place of rest. It was a place of shalom. And so each of these cycles in chapters 5 to 8 transition from holy warfare to rest, shalom, house building. So creation is clearly in the background because what did God do before he entered into his shalom? He created. He created. But after the fall, because of sin and rebellion, holy warfare has to precede sh- Sabbath, holy warfare has to precede rest. The creation background that I think is picked up or implied here implies that David is building a prototype of a new world where God's people will be in God's place under God's rule expressed through the king from the tribe of Judah. So this is the king who has subdued people to himself. Former rebels who now are coming to him on his terms. And now he is defeating his, he's defeating their enemies, and he's bringing rest. He's bringing shalom. He's building the city of God. And yet he recognizes that his success was not grounded by his personal competence. In fact, we've seen times where David was fundamentally incompetent. It was because the Lord, notice, was with him. I love that. David became greater and greater, for the Lord was with him. Another evidence that the Lord was with him is found in verse 11. This is beautiful. In Hiram, king of Tyre. These are pagan enemy nations to Israel. Sent messengers to David and cedar trees. Carpenters and masons who built David a house. Foreign favor is a new development in the narrative. This is a Gentile contributing to the building of Messiah's house. I mean, it's glorious. It's beautiful. In other words, under David's shepherding... Israel is fulfilling the calling that was given to them to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to the nations who are now blessing the seed of Abraham. And this helped David to know something very important. Notice in verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew. I love that. What did he know? First of all, the Lord had established established him as king over Israel. Think of all the trials. Think of the murders, the intrigue, the rebellion, the, the false ambition, the civil war, and the waiting, and the waiting, and the waiting. This had to be the Lord. Only the Lord could have accomplished this. Sometimes God puts us in places where he's the only one that can come through. And when he comes through, you know, I can't take credit for that. There's no human being that could take credit of that. The second thing he knew, the Lord had made him king, notice, for the sake of the people. For the sake of the people Israel, not for the sake of David personally. He was simply a conduit of God's blessings. Oh, that we could learn that. When God blesses us, and all of us are richly blessed in so many ways, it's not so that we can be cul-de-sacs of his blessings, so that we might be conduits of his blessings. And yet, having said all that, all was not well. All was not well. Look at me in verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. It appears some of these could have been from the Jebusites themselves. After he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David, and these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. He's going to give you the the sons' names, not that the daughters aren't important, they're just as important, but the sons in the ancient Near East indicated power Shemua Shobab Nathan Solomon Ibar Elishua Nepheg Japhia Elishama Eliada Eliphela but I want you to zoom in on these words verse 13 David took David took Now, in the context of the newly enthroned king, these words echo a warning given by Samuel so many years earlier in 1 Samuel 8, where we read four times you want a king? Here's what the king's gonna do. Four times, he will take. He will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, your olive orchards. He will take a tenth of your grain and a tenth of your flocks. Big government, which scripture indicates is not a good thing. In this case, he took the nation's daughters. And this, again, was a clear violation of the law. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, when God gives Israel a king, he was planning to give them one on his timetable, in his way. The king was not to multiply wives. And of course, we know Genesis two twenty four. God's plan for marriage is one woman, one man, one flesh. And that never changes. So the Old Testament, it's insane for people to say this. They just don't know how to read the scriptures. It does not sanction polygamy. What the Old Testament is doing is it's showing us we need a faithful bridegroom who is not polygamous. We need a better king. We need a better Messiah. Now in chapter three, in verses two to five, we saw David in Hebron, was multiplying wives. He had six at that time and six sons. And now he has 11. But the names on this list are ominous. Solomon. I want you to just do a few of these. Solomon, Shemuah, Shobab, Nathan. Why these names? These are the names, these are the sons of a wife to come named Bathsheba. Bathsheba. These names foreshadow the horrific sin issues that will come to haunt David. And if multiple wives were problem enough, Note, he now has concubines. Who were the concubines? These were the women that David would have relations with, but weren't accorded the dignity of marriage. And so for several reasons, let's close this out. 2 Samuel 5 reveals that the old Jerusalem, the place where... David resided and built was the place of David's greatness as well as his failure as a shepherd. It drives home that we need a better shepherd. One who will guide us, to use Revelation 7, 17, I love this verse, by springs of living water. And we need a better city than the old Jerusalem, a place where all rebellion against the kingdom of God will be done away with. Where, to use Revelation 21 language, every tear will be wiped away, and death shall be no more, for the former things have passed away. So just as Scripture teaches us to look forward to a greater David, the Scripture also teaches us who believed the promises to look forward to a better Jerusalem, where God will make all things new. Moses had understood as far back as Numbers 27 that Israel needed a shepherd. Of course, if Israel needed a shepherd, the nations needed a shepherd because the blessings of God were going to come through the seed of Abraham, right? In Numbers 27, he said, let the Lord... A point over a man over the congregation, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. And that was partially fulfilled in David. In the coming days, though, when David's kingdom has fallen and it will fall, and it's going to fall hard, this promise will be remembered and picked up again by a prophet named Micaiah who will say to the evil king Ahab, I saw all Israel scattered as sheep that have no shepherd. Now that's sad because they had one. And David himself needed one. Through the prophets, the Lord will promise to give a shepherd for his people. One of the glorious prophecies of Ezekiel 34 Think of this. 300 years after David lived, Ezekiel prophesied this. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Is this David reincarnate? 300 years after David? No. Ezekiel just knows that the, the promise is coming through the family of David. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be a shepherd their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. That's the hope of a people in exile. I'm going to raise up another shepherd from the line of David. In 700 years after Ezekiel, Matthew writes of Jesus, the son of David, these words in Matthew 2, verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Indeed, Jesus comes along. What does he say in John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. Not like the shepherd you've had before, even David. I am the good shepherd. I'm not a polygamist. I have one bride. And what does this shepherd do? He will lay down his life for a sheep. Indeed, Jesus is a shepherd who does not take and take and take. He gives. He gives his own life so that we might be made fit to dwell in the new Jerusalem a holy city. We are made fit to, be, to dwell there because we are wicked and sinful and rebellious like the Jebusites. And he takes our sin and he's crushed for it. And he's raised from the grave as the first man of the new creation, as the first man of the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And for those who are trusting in him, we're united to him And his righteousness is credited to us. And 1 Peter 5, 4 tells us that he's the chief shepherd. I love that. John says he's the good shepherd. Peter says he's the chief shepherd who's coming again. And when he does, he's going to fundamentally and finally defeat all of his and our enemies. And he will shepherd us in a place where all rebellion against the kingdom of God will be done away with once and for all. That's our hope. We're hope junkies, aren't we? This is the hope. And Pastor and lived in that hope, even as he's about to be beheaded. And that's why his words still speak in his death. Don't worry, but thank God for everything. The plan is in place. The king is seated at the right hand of God. And he's going to sit there until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. That's a word for the people of God. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you that we have one better than David. Because when we look at David, we, we, we sometimes feel like we're looking in a mirror, which is not good news for us. But we have one that has come who obeyed you fundamentally and fully as the chief shepherd. And he is shepherding his sheep. And we are his sheep because he laid down his life for us. Lord, I pray that this text would strengthen our faith in him. Foster our hope for what will one day be. A new heavens and new earth. And may that hope inform our lives. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, oh God, we just pray today that they would humble themselves. They would come to realize just knowing an academic truth, head knowledge about uh, about Jesus is not enough. That they have to come to the king and bow the knee to the king. And I pray today you would draw men and women to yourself. And Father, if they would be so compelled, I would love for them to come see me, to talk to me about these realities. We pray for that. And Lord, we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.